Well, today we're going to be uh, we're going to get into chapter eight of First Corinthians, of course, as y'all's been working through. And I've no doubt y'all y'all have probably heard an extensive, pretty much introduction to the land, to the city of Corinth. Well, in that city, of course, there's a, there was a lot of different idols and, uh, and temples and gods getting worshipped. And being that it was an isthmus on this uh, Peloponnesian connection to the mainland of Corinth, it was a place of really diverse crowds and diverse wealth and prosperity. So this is what we see was this intersection going on in 1 Corinthians, the letter. And of course, in that, we see the leaders or whoever, whoever addressed this to Paul, they, first them, they had a lot of questions. And so starting in chapter 7, we see those questions beginning to be answered. And as we get to chapter 8, primarily what Paul begins to address is the exercise of Christian liberty. So how do we do that and the things that we differently look at when we're doing, when we're trying to determine in a difficult and a very culturally influenced society, how does a Christian go about living their life? So in this we see in chapter 8, Paul provides us with three fundamental approaches to how Christian liberty should be understood. And our first one, and, and no doubt uh, being Paul, as we all know, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, Paul begins with the fundamental premise that our liberty should be exercised in love. So verses 1 through 3. So let me, uh, let me read the whole chapter, and then uh, and, uh, we'll, do, we'll address it all as we go through. So now concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he has known anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he has been known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things, sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom, we, uh, by, uh, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We neither lack if we do not eat, nor abound if we do eat. But see to it that this authority of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother whose sake Christ died. And in, the way, and in that way, by sinning against the brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food causes my brother to stumble. I will never eat meat again, ever, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let me pray before we be. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time in your word, and we thank you for your word, Lord, and your truth. We ask you to please guide our minds and our hearts, Lord, and open our minds and our hearts to your knowledge, Lord. And we do according to your will in all things, Lord. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So as we address in the verses, beginning with our liberty should be exercised in love, verses 1 through 3. So Paul begins it with his, pretty much his usual now concerning. Now concerning these things, sacrificed idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So he's talking about the general Christian knowledge that everybody should possess 
that has come to salvation, come to faith in understanding things. And Paul addresses, as you see, he gives him, he throws that we in there. So he's giving this general principle that we all have this knowledge. But we know something about the Corinthians already. We know something that they have somewhat of a pride issue. This is something that Paul's already kind of touched on in earlier chapters. So we see that the fact that he's coming right out the gate with, we all have this knowledge, but there's a problem. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Well, we already know from the uh, previous addresses in chapter 4, chapter 5, and now we're seeing chapter 8, and we'll see again in chapter 13, Paul uses this term arrogant, which means to be puffed up. Then they are again in a point where they're becoming arrogant because of their abilities and their knowledge. And these knowers, these people that possess this high, they think, high levels of knowledge, have begun to use it in such a way as that they're causing the people that have not quite come to the understanding, they have a weaker knowledge, a weaker moral faculty of discerning what's right and wrong, and they're causing them to step into sin. And Paul, beginning by addressing that, said, listen, our fundamental premise in the exercise of our love, in the exercise of our knowledge is love. He says, your knowledge, the knowledge you think you possess, is to be calling you to be puffed up. He goes, but love builds up. He said, this love, he goes, love is the, uh, the word used here is oikidomeo. It's basically a construction word. It's means to you building things up. He said, instead of this arrogant pride that you're exercising, you should be using love. You should be building up those who are weaker in understanding than you. Instead of using it to tear them down. He goes on. He says, let's see here in one second. He says, but this supremacy of love is something that Paul has already addressed in the previous letter, or we see later on in chapter 13. And he will continue this address throughout. He says, for chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, he says, if we speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, we have become a noisy gong or a claiming single. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The supremacy of love in your knowledge and the exercise of your God-given gifts that God has, God has endowed you with is chief among things guiding you in your life. And it should be the chief thing guiding the Corinthians in the exercise of their knowledge and gifts. But it's not. They've become arrogant in it. Because as we know, as uh, Jesus has already taught, Jesus already given us in the gospel we see in John 13, we're commanded to love. This is how people will know us. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love should be infused in everything we do. And you're going to run into this in life, and especially in our culture where we're so intertwined and inundated with every different false teaching, false doctrine, and knowledge, philosophy, high level of everything is coming at us all day long. So understanding how you're to live through that is number one, based on true knowledge. Paul doesn't disregard their knowledge. But Paul says that knowledge should be exercised in love. 
as it says in Ephesians 4.15, but speak the truth in love. So everything should be exercised in love. Verse 2, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. So he's calling them out here. He says, listen, if you think that you've come to some superior level of knowledge, that now that you're continuing to do this, you're continuing to act arrogantly and pridefully, you don't know what you think you know. You're not as mature as you think you are. You're still acting in an immature way if you're not grounding this in love. He says, I'm addressing this to you. But he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul takes their immaturity and says, listen, where did you get this knowledge? Where did you get this love? Where at all did this come from? Did it, ex- did it come from you or did it come from God? It came from God. You came through his salvation is through grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. You're not your own. You're acting arrogantly, independently, and self-centeredly. Where you should be realizing that you did not come about on your own doing. It says that for those who are truly saved, as 1 John 4, 7 through 8 states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. This should emanate from you. You should first think, how do I love and edify my brother and sister? Not how do I exercise my liberty to get what I want when I want it. Paul addresses this later on in in chapters 9 and 10 where he goes even further talking about the things that he has personally sacrificed and will sacrifice to edify someone else, to build up a brother and sister. So we see this preeminently that Paul grounds it in the fact that you are not your own, that God has called your salvation to be, and that you should act in love if you are his child. It goes on and says, God graciously gives his knowledge to those whom he knows and loves. As it says in 2 Timothy 9, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The grace of God could cause us to care for others as Christ cared for them. We see this one of the famous passages in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. We are a body. Christ, the body of the people of believers, we care for one another. We look out for the interests of one another for the interests of ourselves. This is the premise that Paul is gathering. He says, you sh- this understanding should shatter your prideful knowledge and make you realize that all true knowledge has been given by God. So you have no reason for pride. No reason for arrogance. No reason to be puffed up. You'd be grounded in complete humility. If you understand how you came to be as a Christian, humility should be the founding thing of your life. 
So it says more of a, you should have humility in your God-given knowledge and stop using knowledge as an excuse for self-serving pride. So now having addressed in the first three uh, things, Paul lays the groundwork of love. He lays that premise. He says, following first, remember that love must be present with our knowledge in the exercise of our Christian liberty. He now moves to confirm some of the beliefs that the Corinthians have had. Not all the knowledge that the Corinthians had is wrong, but he needs to ground it first in love. And now he moves to the second approach, the second fundamental way you should, visit, you should see your Christian liberty. He says that we should address those who are using the Christian without careful considering the conscience, those who are weak in faith. When we exercise our liberty, we should be always an understanding of where our brothers and sisters are at, where their maturity is at. Is this going to help them? Is this going to hurt them? Is this going to edify them? Or is this going to destroy them? So let's look at verse, verses 4 through 8. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing in the idol in the world, and there is no such God but one. So Paul confirms two things that they have possibly addressed to him in this letter. Number one, he says you're right on the fact there are no real idols in the world. They're just man-made possessions made of gold, silver, mud, whatever they've done. And if they have any influence at all, it is through demonic stuff. If there's only one God, that's it. So he confirms that. Number two, he says, there are no other gods, only one. So he addresses their knowledge. We don't have the previous letter, but we understand that they've, they've probably stated some things. So he addresses these two points. Clearly, he says, you're right on this. This is a fundamental Christian biblical understanding. It goes on and says, Isaiah 43, 10 to 11. It says, before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. God is very clear in the Old Testament that he is God alone. There's none before, be none after, stands unique. None. No one else. So the Corinthians are right in that. And that idols are but human creation, as the psalmist says in 115, 1 through 8. Now this one's a little long, so hold on with me. So not to us, O Lord, not to us, the psalmist speaks. But to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in, heaven, in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. There are idol, their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. So it is a fundamental biblical truth what Paul is confirming to them. There are no real idols and there is only one God. So yes, they are right in that. So he moves on. Number five, because they do live in Corinth. Verse five, they, so they are surrounded by, by temples, gods, and our lords, everybody else. So let's look, verse five says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So Paul is confirming them, listen, number one, the two points that we just made, 
But I understand that you live in a world surrounded by these things, surrounded by these so-called gods and so-called lords. But they're not real. We know that there's a demonic influence that you're experiencing. So he goes on to address. And to address this moves into verse 6. And verse 6 begins what is, what is one of the most clear declarations of the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus, that is often mislooked in the text. When we go to those deity passages, we go to, you know, John 1, we go to all these different passages that speak clearly of the deity of Christ. But one of the ones that's often mis, missed over or mislooked is this passage right here. Paul does something extremely unique. He takes, now Corinth predominantly was Greek, right? But we know the custom of Paul was that when he went to an area, he traditionally went to the synagogue first. Well, so there was Jewish people in this congregation, probably predominantly Greek, but there were Jewish people present. And no doubt they were being taught from the Old Testament. Well, Paul here lays the groundwork where he expands the Shema. Listen, listen, listen to the Shema, and you'll, you'll see it when he begins to unravel it in verse 6 here. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now let's read verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, who from all things, and we exist from him. Nope, sorry. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. You see that? One God, the Father. One Lord, Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 6 4. Here is it. The Lord our God is one. You see, it? Paul begins to expand the Shema to show them. That although there are many gods and many lords that you're so-called around you. When we look at the Godhead, there is only one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he addresses two of them here. And he connects Jesus and the Father through the Shema. Unbelievable. I mean, like, it's, just, it's, it's amazing to hear. It's amazing to see Paul do this. It's unprecedented, as they say, in, the, uh, in most of the New Testament. So it is wonderful to see. So let's get into it. For us, there's one God. So strong adversative, as they say. Paul is turning quickly here when he addresses this. He says, yet for us. He turns the page real quick. He says, yes, all those gods and lords, and you see all that. Even Caesar at this time, we know the cult of the, uh, cult of the emperors. At this time, that even some of the Caesars and stuff had started to address themselves as gods. So there was many gods, many lords, many of these curiosities running around town. But Paul turns hard. He says, but there's only one. One God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. There's two truths that Paul gives about the Father here. Two ways he addresses him. He says he is the source of all things. All things exist from him. Nehemiah 9, 5 through 6. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. 
You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heaven of the heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So we know that God is the source. God the Father is the source of all things. Point number two. And the purpose and the goal of all things. He's not only the source, he's the purpose. To him are all things. So part six, so let's get to 6B. We'll get to part two. The one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So only one Lord of lords, only one King of kings, Jesus Christ. He has the name above all names, as we know from Philippians 2, 9 to 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth, under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is God the Son. Paul ties them together to demonstrate to them that, listen, Although monotheism, although they rule in the Old Testament, I'm expanding this to you. I'm explaining this as he did in the other text. The Godhead. He shows them God the Son, God the Father. He demonstrates that to them. He said, there's only one. All these things around you may confuse you, but understand. You're right in this knowledge. This you're right on. And he's explaining it to him. He's actually taking him more in depth. The knowledge that they may have had about God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, he's explaining more to them, impressing them, and probably agreeing with the fact that they are right in this knowledge. So he says, let's see, two truths about, about Jesus. As we all know, if we've uh, listened to, ever got into Colossians and other stuff like that, it's so good hearing about things that de de define Jesus. It says, all things created, all things came to be through Jesus. It's John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Moreover, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Both this Corinthians passage, both the, the, first, the John passage and the Colossians passage all tell us that Jesus is God in flesh. He's not a created being. He was before all things. So that's what Paul is bringing in. He says, listen, these things, these lords are created beings. These idols are nothing. These lords that rule over you and try to control your life, they're just people. To us, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the one Lord we serve is Christ, and he is king. So Paul addresses this. And number two, point number two, he makes this clear, he says, and all Christians came to be through Jesus. He says, 
we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So preeminently, not only has he created everything, he's the Lord of all things, but we know we came to be through him. So these are these points. He says, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. I won't read them for sake of time. <laughs> but we are saved through no other name than Jesus, as it says in Peter. Acts 4.12, as Peter says in Acts 12, 4.12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no one other name under heaven that has been given among men which we must be saved. We have redemption, the forgiveness of trespasses in him. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And we have peace with God through him. As Romans 5, 1 states, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is reminding them that not only has he created everything, but you have come to be who you are through him. And it is only in him that you have your being as a Christian. Verse 7. But again, he turns heart. So now he has just confirmed this knowledge to them. He has just confirmed and expanded the knowledge that they, they have probably addressed him in the first letter. But he turns. He turns back to address the problem. Verse 7, he says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He's saying that all Christians have come to know the basic truths that, that are required for salvation. But the total implication of that knowledge in the sense that like the full expansion that he has given here and other instances of that have not taken hold in their immaturity. We all grow. The sanctification process, the growing process in the knowledge of God is the same thing going on throughout the same centuries since salvation began. And just as here, you have those who are using their knowledge in prideful ways, and they're addressing and causing the immature to sin because of that. As it says here, their conscience, their weak, inner moral faculty. That is their ability to really discern the areas that the Lord has not explicitly addressed. And in a culture like this where they're constantly surrounded, I know that y'all, being this eighth chapter, I know that y'all probably already heard this before, but you know that Corinth, it's got temples everywhere. It's got places of eat. The food being sacrificed there is being sold in the markets. You have food, cheap food and cheap meats being sold in the temple that are part of religious institutions and on festivals that, that, will, that Paul will cover more explicitly in a prohibition in chapter 10. But the given thing is that they're constantly surrounded by this. So if you're a person, if you're a Christian that has just come out of this pagan belief where that you were a part of all of this, and now you're a Christian, and you really don't understand how to decipher all this. How do I move throughout this? How do I move throughout my life? Because in Corinth, as it was in a lot of the Greco-Roman world, it was very community-based. There were, you know, festivals, home eatings, home, uh, like where they were like birthday parties, get-togethers. A lot like this week that we just had was Thanksgiving, where everybody got together with friends and family. So they had a lot of that going on. Well, some of these immature Christians that didn't really understand their liberty, didn't really understand how to address these issues, saw everything as possibly 
idolatry. And some of it is. Some of it will dress. We'll dress later in chapter 10 where you will dress idolatry. But Paul is primarily addressing here those who are not taking into effect the weaker or immature people that don't quite understand what to do. So he's addressing them. He's saying, listen, but not all are accustomed. Not all have this knowledge yet. Not all have come to the full implication of this knowledge. So their conscience, they're going against their conscience trying to go with you or you're encouraging them to go against their conscience. This is going to end up defiling their conscience because to them, they're thinking it's idolatry. They're thinking that it's wrong. And it may be in some cases, but the instance, as we know, it's never good to go against conscience. That you got to listen to that, in, that inward more, the holy, leading of the Holy Spirit in your mind. So and they addressed that and they, and they said, that, listen, by doing this, you're leading them into be defiled and be made impure by the eating of this food that they think is wrong. So what are they doing? They're putting their self-right, their, their, their assumed authority over the welfare of their brothers and sisters. They violated fundamental rule one, not leading with love because of their knowledge. So they're leading others into sin. All right, strike, strike two, as they say. But Paul comes back. So he addresses the fundamental knowledge. Verse seven, he says, hey, but the problem is this, is that you're, yes, that is right, but you're using it in a wrong way. And then he comes to number, verse eight. He says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Paul is coming back and to end this section with the fact that, yes, but you are right in the fact that we, it will not commend us to God. This language means it will not put us before God. Neither in, neither, neither in before, before God in judgment nor grant us God's favor. Food in and it's, of itself is spiritually neutral. You're not going to gain God's favor by eating it or abstaining from eating it, nor are you going to gain his judgment by it. Or are you going to come before him in judgment? The language there, in a sense, is becoming before him in judgment. So that's what Paul is saying. You're right in the fact that spirit, uh, food in and of itself is spiritually neutral. But how you're abusing others in the process is what's wrong. And we'll address, they'll address more later on in chapter 10. I don't want to get into other people's uh, stuff. But the, there is idolatry involved in some of this food sacrifice. So don't think that Paul is necessarily commending some of the, the, the knower's actions because he will address them further and like say some of this stuff is idolatry so you need to be careful and that's kind of what he's addressing here he's saying listen some of this stuff is idolatry and you have to be careful but as the point he says the food will not commend us to God will neither make us worse nor if we do eat nor better if we do eat so we do not lack anything if we abstain from eating nor do we gain if we choose to eat all right, so last section, verses 9 through 13. So Paul turns once again. This section, as Ramalee said, is where he probably makes his pinnacle argument. It, what it should be a pinnacle and piercing argument for every Christian, as we will see. It says, our liberty should not lead us others, should not allow us to lead others to sin. Verse 9 says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is to set that is to cause a brother or sister to fall into sin. Possibly, as we talk about, even to the sin of idolatry. You're setting a stumbling block before them 
because of your pridefulness. You're causing them to violate their conscience, to lead them into sin they shouldn't be involved in. And it's going to cause them to fall. It's causing them to become, to be either consciously convicted or possibly even to get into stuff that they should not be in because of your self-righteous and self-pride-driven, you know, knowledge-based pridefulness. So we have to be real careful of that, real careful how we exercise our liberty. We must understand those around us. Sorry, one second. Verse 10, for if someone sees you, so Paul goes to address this um, almost like a scenario. Now, it's probably a a made-up scenario by Paul, but in essence, it's probably a real-life scenario that's going on in this church at the time. He says, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? That word be strengthened is the same root word that he used in the thing that love edifies or love builds up. So here he's addressing him. He says, listen, these people that have not quite reached the maturity level to understand are going to see you who are claiming to be the knowledgeable ones reclining in the temple, eating this food, and they're going to be like, well, I guess I should be like them. And you're going to build them up for destruction. Because they may even be, find themselves a part of idolatry. At, at least case, their conscience will destroy them. At worst case, they'll find themselves involved with all the idolatry. You have built them up now. Instead of in love, you have built them up for destruction. As Paul's addressing to them is very serious. He goes on to verse 11. And, he, and he starts, his language starts to get more serious as he addresses this. He says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The language here is very strong. He says, through your prideful exercise of your knowledge and your liberty, this person is being ruined. This person's conscience is being destroyed. We all know that the mental faculties affect the physical faculties, right? You no doubt if their conscience is being destroyed, their demeanor is probably falling, their joy is probably dissipating, and their life is the worst for it. And that's the best case scenario. Because as you see in chapter 10, when we talk about real life idolatry, we're talking about real, real life stuff. Because as we know, no idolatry will inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about serious problems. So at best case, you're destroying their conscience. At worst case, you're leading somebody who may, uh, you know, who may, you're leading somebody into idolatry. So you have to be very careful how you walk and lead your life in Christ, in the culture that they lived in and the culture we live in today. So that's what Paul's addressing to them too. So he goes on 11b, verse 11. The brothers whose sake Christ died. As I'm saying, Paul goes to make his chief argument. There's not a Christian in the room, a true, saved, Holy Spirit-filled Christian, that when someone says, for whom Christ died, that it doesn't strike you. Now what was somewhat of an argument, somewhat of an esoteric, academic argument, more or less, has now come home to the reality that you are hurting someone for whom Christ died. 
That's what's going on. Your arrogance has become a problem. And it even goes on even worse. It says verse 7, or excuse me, verse 12. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul has turned the argument now to its point, to its pinnacle. You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten who they are. You are sinning against Christ when you sin against them. This is the chief issue that they need to wrestle with. Is your liberty so required? Is your, is your prideful arrogance in the exercise of your Christian liberty so needed that you would callously sin against Christ? That's the problem. That's what Paul is bringing to his culmination here. So he goes, as Thomas Schreiner comments, I'll tell you his comment as we're running low on time, but in fact, Thomas Schreiner quotes, in fact, they are act as antichrist in the sense that Christ gave himself for the weak to deliver them from sin. And the knowers, these prideful ones, through living selfishly, are influencing the weak to sin. Because in that verse 12, I talk about that wounding the conscience. That word for wounding, it means strike. Strike out at. So they are willfully striking at the conscience of these weak people and causing them to sin. And therefore, they are sinning against Christ. Paul brings it to an end of what he'll continue to further address in chapter 9. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. I will not scandalize them is the word. Paul uses here the ume eris subjunctive as they say in Greek. That is the, one of the strongest ways, if not the strongest way the Greeks can say no. That is them yelling never. Paul is saying, I will never eat meat if that's what it means to protect my brothers and sisters from falling into sin. That's how far he's willing to go so that they will not sin. And most importantly, he will not sin against Christ in sinning against them. That's what he's willing to do. That's what we must be willing to do in our lives. As all of y'all young people go your different ways, after high school, during college, wherever you may go, you're going to be faced with the, the same type of challenges that the Corinthians had in the sense of your life will be inundated with different choices of how to exercise your Christian liberty and your knowledge. So what does that lead us to? It leads us to application, right? How do we apply the teaching to our lives today? So number one, no matter how much we know about the Bible, whether we're novice or theologian, we must not be arrogant. But we must let love guide us 
in our Christian liberties. We must speak the truth in love. We never back up on the truth. We never surrender the truth, but we speak it and live it in love. Point number two, application number two. We must compassionately consider the needs and maturity of our brothers and sisters when exercising our liberty. Know those around you. Know where they're at and be compassionate with them. Understand that not everybody may have come to the knowledge that you know. They may not have been in church their whole life. They may, not, they may have just become a Christian. We have to understand where they're at in their maturity level and build them up in love and knowledge. Edify them. Build them up. Point number three. We must always remember that to sin against a brother and sister in Christ is to sin against Christ himself. This is dead serious. To strike a blow against your brothers and sister in Christ is to strike a blow against Christ himself. That's how serious it is. Christ died for that believer. As it says in 1 Peter 1, through, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1 18 through 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with the perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So understand that. So how we treat others matters to God. Don't let your liberty lead another into sin. So we come to today. I want to end with one final thing, and that is that what we've talked to you about today is about Christian liberty. That is those who are in Christ. So remember, this, if this does not apply to you, if you are not a believer, your greatest need today is to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Just to trust in his works. And repent and turn to him. And we, I'm sure we have people afterwards that can talk with you and pray with you that need to do that today. So today is the day. Don't let, don't let today go by. Let's be the day today you turn to Christ. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time in your word. We thank you for the precious truths that you've given. We ask you, Lord, please guide our minds and our hearts, Lord. Direct us. And the exercise, Lord, that you alone have given us. And the knowledge that you alone have filled in our hearts and minds. We thank you for all things and we thank you for this time. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.